Good morning, everybody. My name is Derek. For the visitors here, and it's my privilege to bring you God's word this morning. But it will be wrong of me not to give all the praise and glory to our Lord this morning. Uh, we have been so blessed to see and witness a baptism, and we often underestimate the benefit of baptism, and we always think about Julia and her decision to, to turn to the Lord and to have faith in Him, but one of the, the benefits of baptism is that it's a, a visible symbol, and so as much as she has been encouraged this morning, all of us should be very encouraged by witnessing God's promises come to fruition in her life. And this should be a reminder for those of us that look upon Christ, and it should remind you of the day that you decided to believe in Christ. And if there's anybody here this morning that have not quite reached that point of looking upon Christ, I pray that, that this would be an encouragement to you and a prompt about this truth. And then furthermore, we later on going to have Lord's Supper and this is the, the next sacrament that the Lord has given us. So do not overlook the fact that we are blessed to have both these sacraments in one day. And that does not often happen. So our message this morning is from the Gospel of John, John chapter 3. And... John writes his gospel to proclaim the divinity of Christ. It's the fourth gospel. We know that Matthew, Mark, and Luke was written before John. But we'd be looking at the occasion this morning from John chapter 3, where this man, Nicodemus, comes to speak to Jesus, and what it is that Jesus reveals to him in this conversation. We know that John refers back to the Old Testament quite a bit. There's many references to Moses specifically, the Exodus, the law, the wilderness wanderings. And this is because John is connecting Jesus' divinity to Israel, the chosen nation, and displaying that these two things are not separated. In the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see the history of Jesus, who he was, what he said. But John reveals more. John digs deeper and John reveals the divinity of Christ. He reveals spiritually who Christ is. He reveals some of the divine mystery that was not quite fully revealed in the first three Gospels. So John's focus is in most of his teaching is revealing the divinity of Christ and the nature of his kingdom. We'll also see this morning that entry into the kingdom of Christ, this kingdom that John reveals, has conditions to it. And John explains, and Jesus, this is the big message of what Jesus is revealing to Nicodemus. We see in the Gospel of Matthew that he traces Jesus' ancestry back to Abraham. 
because Matthew reveals Jesus as the awaited Messiah for the Jewish nation. We see that Luke traces Jesus' ancestry back to Adam because Luke presents Jesus as the saviour of the whole world. And so we have our ancestry in Adam. But we see John, in John 1 verse 1, he doesn't mess around, he goes straight to the point and he draws Jesus' ancestry back to the Creator himself. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. So John expands this understanding that we have of Jesus, this Messiah, this Christ that came to the Jewish nation, but John reveals that it's actually the Creator God himself. Jesus did not become the Son of God when he was born 2,000 years ago. John is saying he's always been the eternal, pre-existent Son of God. And John's stated purpose for his whole gospel is captured in chapter 20, verse 31. John says, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. In other words, that Jesus is the anointed one, the Son of God. And that believing, you may have life in his name. So he's talking about a different kind of life. It's not the life we have physically. Life in his name, eternal life. It's a spiritual concept. And throughout John, we continuously see him painting this picture of divine, eternal light and life compared to darkness and the absence of life. So in our text this morning, we, we read one of the most popular verses of the Bible, John 3.16. And I don't think there'd be many of us that cannot very closely recite John 3.16. And I know we've just read it, but would any one of you, without looking back at your Bible, know what's written in verse 14 and verse 15 and verse 17? Uh, I was asked that through the week, actually, and I couldn't remember. But I know that as we talk through it this morning, you are going to see that Jesus reveals that as amazing as verse 16 is, the other three verses around them is just as amazing. And so maybe you can... Recite with me, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Please pray with me before we start. Our Almighty God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise and glorify your name for your faithfulness and your provision for us this day. Lord, we pray that the, the life-giving truth that we saw this morning in baptism would be opened up to us this morning in simplicity. We pray that you give us ears to hear and hearts that are open to this message, that each one of us will honestly examine ourselves and realize that we need a personal relationship with you. Lord, I pray that anyone sitting here this morning that does not know you yet or has doubts 
about eternal life that they would hear this morning the simplicity of your plan of salvation and that they would not leave this morning without crying out to you as their Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. So John chapter 3, as it was read earlier this morning, starts with an introduction to a man named Nicodemus. And John does this because he wants us to know who this man is, and he wants us to understand what is the context of this conversation that is going to follow between him and Jesus. And from the introduction, we learned that Nicodemus is a Pharisee. So he's Jewish, he is very religious, he's, a, he's Bible reading, in other words, scripture reading, Old Testament, he's upright, he's God-fearing, Yahweh-fearing. He believes every word of scripture. He prays every day, he fasts twice a week. He's within the covenant nation. He's circumcised. And verse 2 even tells us that he knows that Jesus is sent by God. So Nicodemus sees something in the divinity of Christ. But he's puzzled. Verse 10 shows us that he's a master teacher. Which means he's a, he's a teacher of teachers. He's got a very high standing. So his knowledge of scripture is up there. But we see that Nicodemus came at night, most likely to protect his reputation as a teacher. And either John doesn't share the whole conversation or Jesus goes straight to the point and he speaks to Nicodemus' heart. Jesus sees what, what his big question is and he says, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born again. This is Jesus' words to Nicodemus. But Nicodemus is confused. He's grappling with this and says, how can this be that an adult can be reborn? Surely I cannot go to the womb of my mother. So he's completely thinking physically. But Jesus' response to him is confirming this same truth. You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you are born again. And Jesus explains that flesh gives birth to flesh. But if you seek spiritual rebirth, it can only come from the Spirit. And another thing that I noticed in verse 7 was that Jesus says, you and must. You as an individual must be reborn, Jesus says. That means there's no group salvation plan. There's no group entry plan the way that the Jewish nation believed it to be. There's no family entry ticket. There's no family pass like you get at Wild Waters on the Gold Coast. There's no discount tickets. The only way is individual entry into the kingdom of God. And this is the first truth that Jesus shares with Nicodemus. But we see that Nicodemus is still confused. He does not understand what Jesus is saying. And in verse 10, we notice that Jesus changes his tone. 
And it seems like Jesus is rebuking Nicodemus. And the question is why? Why, why does, is Jesus hard on Nicodemus here? Is it reasonable for Jesus to expect him to understand this very abstract concept of spiritual rebirth? Does the Old Testament actually teach that? Remember, Nicodemus was a master teacher. So if there was verses in the Old Testament, he should know about it. Well, there is a few verses in the Old Testament relating to new life. The Old Testament teaches of a new heart being given to the people, delivered from the power of sin, Ezekiel, new life in Isaiah, new shoots growing, also in Isaiah, and a new heart being given in Jeremiah. Remember the hearts of stone being removed and hearts of flesh being given. So these, these verses do point to new life. But I, I think there's something more that Nicodemus was not quite getting. There's a very clear narrative in the Old Testament that changes everything. And up until the point that you don't see it, it doesn't change your life. But when you see it, it changes everything. And once you see it, you cannot unsee it. And this is what I believe Jesus is pointing to. It goes all the way back to the fall in Genesis 2. The first time that death enters creation. Genesis 2 verse 17. Where God speaks to Adam and he says to him, Do not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. And the consequence we know of eating of the fruit is that Adam did not physically die. That was the, the deceit of Satan. Surely God did not mean you're going to die. And they ate of the fruit, and physically they did not die. Adam lived 930 years. So do you see how you miss the point when you look at the physical? But what happened on that day? That day they ate of the fruit. That very day, mankind spiritually died. Immediate death entered the world on that day. We read later in Genesis 8, the Lord speaking to Noah and he's saying, Never again will I curse the earth because of mankind even though every inclination of their heart is evil from childhood. That spiritual condition is still present after the flood. In fact, that condition is the cause of the flood. The proof that we are all sinners and that we still suffer from that is that it doesn't matter how many vitamins we take, how much we exercise, how much we diet, it doesn't matter what we do, our physical bodies die after a period of time, the same as Adam. And the Bible teaches that death came into this world because of sin. This sin that Jesus is pointing to. So we see throughout the Old Testament this cycle of death, salvation, life, 
being repeated over and over again. The starting point for any reader of Scripture, including the Pharisee, including Nicodemus, is to understand the human heart, the human condition. And the default position is that our hearts is evil from child, childhood. This is God's own words. Meaning we are not in relationship with God. Our default position is being away from God, being against Him, rebelling against Him. So in conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus is pointing to this fact, that creation is fallen and it needs to be restored. And the way to restore this is through a spiritual rebirth. The way to connect your relationship to God as it was back in paradise is through rebirth, spiritual rebirth of the heart. So Jesus was not being hard with Nicodemus because he missed a select passage here or there. But it's because he missed this very big point about the history of Israel. Take sinfulness and the need for a, self, for a savior out of Christianity and what do you have? You have every other, every other religion in the world. Christianity is unique in that we confess our sinful condition. We confess that we can do nothing to deserve salvation. And that's all given by God. It's all His grace. But the sad thing is that there's many prominent people and even people in the church today that would have the same response as Nicodemus. They have the same biblical knowledge. Doctors degrees. But they would say, how can these things be? How can it be that everything in Scripture is true? Surely we need to read it in context of today and interpret it to apply. How can it be that, that humans are spiritually dead? How can it be? And I'm sure you've heard this before. And reading my commentary this week, I've read from the most extreme left and the extreme right of interpretations of this scripture. And it's amazing how the human heart has the ability to deceive itself and to interpret what we're reading to suit our heart instead of allowing the truth to change our heart and knowing from the starting point that our heart is not true and that's what's written in Scripture is true. So at this point in the conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus has pointed him to this truth. But now pay attention to the words that Jesus chooses next. Because Nicodemus is still grappling with this. And Jesus is busy declaring the gospel to him, the good news. And so next in verse 14, Jesus says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that anyone who believes may have eternal life. Now this refers to Numbers 21 and the very strange event of the snakes in the desert and the bronze serpent on the pole healing them from the venom. Now I think you'll, 
agree with me that the Old Testament has many strange things. For me, it's the uh, Balaam's talking donkey is one. The giant bed, King uh, Og of Bashan. And the giant with 12 fingers and 12 toes. The oldest man living 969 years, Methuselah. The day the sun stood still in Joshua 10. And another strange event that we cannot completely always understand is this event with the, the serpents in the desert and God's solution to this. But obviously there's something in this event that is significant that Jesus wants Nicodemus to understand. So from everything in the Old Testament, he uses this example to explain the gospel to Nicodemus. So what is it in this event that Nicodemus would have understood to make him understand the gospel? So in Numbers 21, from verse 4, we read that Israel was traveling towards the Red Sea. But because of the extended traveling in the desert, they became restless, they became grumbling. In other words, they started complaining. And they complained to God about, again, their physical situation. Lord, why are we traveling so long? We are getting sick of this food. There's no proper bread here. We have to eat this manna. We missed the fish, uh, sorry, the meat pots of Egypt. This quail, we're getting sick of it. This is how they spoke against Moses and against God. And so remember, this is in a time when God was providing for their every need. They could not put one claim to anything they were doing for themselves. They weren't working. They weren't working the fields. They weren't harvesting. God was giving them food. He was giving them water. He was protecting them in the cloud from the heat, with the fire pillar, from the cold. Like we saw last week, God was providing for them, and very specifically Christ, Jesus was providing for them physically and spiritually in everything that they required. And not just a portion of them, all of them. The whole nation. But yet, they complained. They started missing all of the provision and protection of the Lord and started complaining. So the Lord sent venomous snakes, fiery snakes among them, and the snakes bit them, and many people died. And it took this quite severe event for them to realize that they did wrong. These snakes are most likely sand vipers. They only grow about that long, and they live under the surface of the sand. So imagine traveling through the desert, in sleeping in tents, mostly having open sandals, sleeping on the, on the sand. And the Lord takes his protection of these snakes because they've always been there. So it's very clearly the Lord taking his protection away and these snakes suddenly appear. But they've always been there. But the people miss that God has been protecting them. So he takes that protection away and it becomes a dilemma. It becomes a crisis for the nation. And a snake bite typically starts with local swelling and a lot of pain, burning. And it swells up and the skin cells die. And then 
that expands through the body, trouble breathing, and eventually death. A very agonizing, painful way to die. So the people come to Moses and say, Moses, please pray to God. We have sinned. We have spoken against the Lord. So they realize. So this pain makes them realize their condition. We've spoken against the Lord, prayed to the Lord to please take away the snakes from us. So Moses prayed for the people. We see a change in heart. We see repentance from these people, from the Jewish nation in the desert. But the Lord's answer is to Moses, make a snake, make a bronze image of a snake, put it on a pole, and those who are bitten can look at this and live. What a strange solution. They asked Moses, please pray to God to take the snakes away. Please pray to God to take the problem away. God says, no, I will not take the problem away. I'll give you a solution. So Moses was to make an image of the problem. The problem was the snakes. So God says, make an image of the problem. Put that image on a pole, lift it up, and those who look upon it will live. And then interestingly, we read that in 2 Kings 18, that's about 1,400 years later, King Hezekiah had to instruct this image to be destroyed. So for 1,400 years, this image of the bronze snake traveled around with Israel. But by that time, it became an idol. They burned incense to it, and they called it Nehushtan. That's Hebrew for image of a serpent. And they burned incense to it, and they believed that this bronze image had healing power. And that's also the connection with the medical symbol for the, the snake around the pole. But that's another story. So we see that the people took this, and one of the extreme interpretations that I read was, here's an example in the Bible where the Lord endorses worshipping an idol. Because this snake was purely an, 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 an image that was lifted up, and they could worship this image, and they were healed. So how can we say praying to an idol is wrong? The Hebrew, um, the Jewish interpretation of this is that the serpents were all an allegory for the tongue, the sharp tongue that um, humans have, and that the poison that they were affected with was the, the sharp words. In the same way that the serpent, through words, brought sin in Eden, this is speaking against words. That's just two examples, but do you see how easy it is to just interpret this as something that it's not. So what's our takeaway from this? Back to our conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Well, first point is we all share in the same deadly infection. The same as the Jewish camp was all affected by the, the snakes. Everybody was affected. We all suffer from that same snake bite. In, the, in the, the world of COVID, we can say we all suffer from the same SIN virus. 
sin virus. We're affected by that, all of us. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you suffer from this virus. That is what Jesus is pointing to Nicodemus. Secondly, our takeaway is that the Lord provides one remedy. God only offers one plan of salvation. One plan announced in Genesis that he will crush your head. Remember the ark? There was one door to the ark. Remember when Israel came to the Red Sea? There was one path opened up through the Red Sea. And all throughout we see Jesus providing one plan of salvation. And this is us today as well. There is not many, many paths up the mountain. There's one true path to salvation. Thirdly, we all have the same choice. We are in this affected camp. We're affected. And as Moses announced to the people, you have to look upon the snake on a pole. And if somebody chose not to look, they died. We all have that choice to make. And this is similar to us today. We have to look at the cross and believe that as Jesus is lifted on the cross, that that heals us. And the fourth point to take back to this conversation with Nicodemus, that Jesus said, salvation is simple. Salvation is looking with faith upon Jesus. It is not keeping 654 rules like Nicodemus was used to doing. Salvation is simple. And it's exclusive. There's one solution. But it's simple. It's something that everybody has the ability to do. It was not a special thing. Even children in the camp that were bitten by the snakes had the ability to be saved. Because it is so simple. So Jesus proclaims this very powerful message of the gospel to Nicodemus. Again, this life-saving, sorry, death-saving and life cycle that we see all through the Old Testament. And think about this for a minute. If you were in the desert 3,400 years ago, and you were lying there and you knew you were going to die because you were bitten by a snake, and somebody comes past and they whisper in your ear, God gave us this message. That all you have to do is look upon this image on the pole and you will live. And because you're so desperate, because there's no other solution, because you understand the urgency of your condition, you have maybe minutes to live. In desperateness, you look upon this image and you're healed. Wouldn't you jump up for joy? And go all through the camp and say, hey, I see you are bitten. I was bitten too. But God sent through Moses this message and I'm healed. Look, I was bitten, but I'm healed. Isn't that what you would do? Because being physically affected is so easy for us to understand. But this is exactly what Jesus is pointing to with Nicodemus. Think about the parallel. Jesus has taken our problem, which is sin, on him. 
and went to the cross. For the Jews in the desert, the snake was the problem. That was put on a pole. Jesus took our problem, which is sin, upon him on a pole. All they had to do to live was look and believe in what Moses told them. All we have to do is look upon Jesus on the cross and believe in what the Bible teaches us he has done. Believe in what he says that he's achieved on the cross for us. And this is the simple message that Jesus is communicating to Nicodemus through verse 14 and 15. And now follows the words of the most popular verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whomever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So with this background of understanding this very urgent condition that we're in, we have minutes. We do not have a lifetime to choose. When you realize that you are in the same situation as this nation in the desert being attacked by snakes, that urgency, that is what brings you to verse 16. For God so loved the world, for God loved the world in such a manner. That's what that means. He loved the world in such a way that he loved that nation in the, in the desert. That he provided a way to life. He provided a, a solution. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Doesn't that put context to that? Jesus didn't come to condemn the ones that are bitten because everybody's bitten. Everybody's affected. He didn't come to condemn. He came to bring the antidote. He came to provide new life. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned. Condemned why? Condemned for not believing this simple truth. It's not about following 654 rules. It's not about anything. It's about believing the simple truth that God says all of you have the ability to understand. This is how simple it is. So why do we not accept it? What does this looking upon Jesus, what does it mean to look upon him with faith? Well, firstly, we do not believe it because we don't want to believe it. We say in our hearts, this cannot be. I'll turn to him one day when I fully understand. But we say in our hearts, this cannot be. How can it be so simple? How can something so drastic, like saving my life, giving me eternal life, how can it be so simple? And our sinful heart says, no, there has to be more to it. But Jesus says, the one solution is look upon me in faith. And what does that mean? So faith is taking this knowledge that has been shared with you this morning. Take the knowledge that's in the Bible. 
and get to the point that you accept it as truth. Stop resisting the truth. Stop wanting to change the truth with your heart, but let the truth change your heart. And you take that knowledge and accepting it and having confidence in what Jesus says about washing away your sin and eternal life. That is faith. Faith is a sure knowledge and a firm confidence in this solution that Jesus provided. It means that faith is what we know about Jesus. The knowledge that we have from the Bible, from testimonies of others, from our own experience, we take that, we accept it as true. It means that you take these simple facts, as Jesus pointed to Nicodemus with a very simple example. And that comes from Jesus. If he's proclaiming the gospel in such a simple way, who are we to make it complicated? Being born again is similar to the creation account. God our Father formed us from the dust with his hands. And he kneeled beside Adam and he lovingly breathed life into his nostrils. A very personal, intimate act. And Jesus declares that he's the only one that has been in heaven and have come down and he reveals this knowledge to us. He's the only one that can. And so he came to earth. He took our sin upon him. And with those same hands, he hung on the cross to provide us the antidote for our situation, for our condition. We are either found dead in Adam, outside of paradise, or we are found alive in Christ, inside of his kingdom. Isaiah 45 verse 22, the Lord says, Turn to me and be saved, you all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and besides me there is no other. This is God's own words, there is no other. And as we prepare our hearts now, for bread and wine. What does this mean? That bread and that wine that you will shortly be holding, feeling, touching, tasting is a sacrament given by God for us to remember that as sure as you feel that bread in your hand and you feel and you see the wine and you taste it, that's surety you should take into this simple example and have that same certainty that Christ has willingly put himself on the cross and sin was pinned upon him. And in that, he provided us a way to eternal life, a way to be reborn. And with rebirth, we get entry into the kingdom of God. We are allowed to be back in paradise with Jesus. And so this meal is not for people that are not affected by the snake bite. This meal, these symbols are especially for people, for us, 
that are affected and that realize that we need a Savior and that we are sinful and we need that reminder. So, praise be to our Lord that on this day He has blessed us with having His sacrament seen twice and having this simple message of the gospel explained that it's not complicated. If you have not reached the point where you have accepted Jesus as your personal Savior, hear this. There is no other solution. Stop resisting the truth and accept Him in and He will not turn you away. That is God's promise that we saw in baptism. That when you meet this condition of faith, He will not turn you away. Praise be to our Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Our Lord Jesus, Lord, we thank you that you have so simply explained your work on the cross for us. Thank you, Lord, that this is in your word and that it's easy to understand easy for all of us to understand. We are all affected by this situation. We are all affected by our sinful nature. Please help us to realize the urgency and that we are, we are not alive, Lord, unless we are in you. Lord, I pray for anyone who's doubting that they may in faith look upon you for healing, for salvation, for eternal life. In Jesus' name, Amen.